Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. Right after the fall of the Saddam Hussein regime in Iraq, there was some farmers who were essentially displaced and they were in the south of Iraq. And what they did is they got together and they decided what they were going to try and do was try and lease some land, some arable land from the government. And they used the last of their savings and borrowings to plant crops. But what happened was a few months later, the farmers got a letter telling them they had to get off the land immediately because there was an oil company who had discovered that there was la- there was oil underneath this land and uh, that's it, you have to go, time to go. And the farmers replied, we're absolutely not moving, this is our land and we're, we're not leaving. So the oil company then threatened to call the police and the farmer said, well, there's more of us, so you send in the police if you like. And they said, well, we'll bring in the army. And the oil company said, we'll bring in the army. And the, uh, the farmer said, we've guns too. And we're not leaving. We've got nothing left to lose. So what happened was the troops started to gather and bloodshed was very much on the horizon. But there was a last minute intervention from a government official who had literally just finished a training program in what's called alternatives to positional bargaining. And what he wanted to see was why both sides had taken up the position they had taken up. Why had the the government forces, the troops in this case, why had they decided that violence was the answer? And why were the farmers so determined to defend their land? There's more There's more to a negotiation than just the position you've taken up. And this is what this particular official decided to do. He decided to ask, essentially, better questions. So what he said was, how long will it be before you expect to produce oil on this land? So that's what he said to the, to the oil company. And the National Oil Company said, probably three years. And then he said, what do you plan to do with the land over the next few months? And they said, well, just a bit of mapping, a little bit of seismic surveying of the underground layers, all that kind of thing, nothing too invasive. Then he asked the farmers, what's the problem with leaving right now, as they've asked? And the farmer said, well, the harvest is in six weeks and it pretty much represents everything that we own. So... It was so obvious what the solution was then. Leave them for six weeks. You're not going... They can come in, do their whatever measuring they needed to do. Farmers can get on with uh, harvesting their crop and, and everybody wins. And just think about that. Just think about how close it was to turning into utter bloodshed. Because side A had taken the position and side B had taken the position and neither side was going to give up. And they seemed like they were absolutely miles apart and there was it was going to turn violent pretty quickly. But by asking the right questions... They were able to get in behind the positions that they'd taken up to discover their interests. And that's pretty much the crux of the book that we're going to talk about today in this uh, podcast episode. It's called Getting to Yes, Negotiating an Agreement Without Giving In. And really what this is about, is about understanding that when it comes to negotiation, there are elements to it that may not seem like they are the most obvious parts, I suppose, of, of negotiation. And that there is a pretty extreme example, the Iraqi army going up against farmers, their own countrymen. But that's what happens when people take in positions. They, they dig in. They dig in and they hold on to their position. I'm not giving this up for hell nor high water. and I'm going to stick to my position. But once you actually get in behind the position, and understand the interests behind the position, 
it becomes an awful lot more easy to negotiate or to find out, well, what are the actual interests? What is it you actually, why have you taken that particular position rather than just talking about your interests? And it's one of the things they talk about in this book is that arguing over positions is inefficient because what can happen is that if you're bargaining over positions rather than interests, you're usually just talking back and forth until somebody gives in. And that's what a lot of people think a negotiation is. I want this, you want that. Let's keep talking till somebody gets bored and gives in. And what you really end up with then is unwise solutions or unwise outcomes that are useless, right? That's not necessarily what's best for everybody involved. So in this book, Getting to Yes, Negotiating an Agreement Without Giving In, they talk about how to actually structure a negotiation. And one of the analogies they use in this book is that when you're looking at a, a particular situation, whether it's buying or selling a house or a car or a union trying to negotiate a wage increase for their, for their members, whatever the thing is that's being negotiated over, one of the analogies they use in this book is to not just, like I said, take positions, but to think about both sides being like uh, Supreme Court judges looking at this case, trying to figure the best way forward. So it's not two people butting heads, it's two people shoulder to shoulder thinking, hmm, how do we figure this problem out? One of the things you can do when it comes to a negotiation is to argue the other person's side. You can go, if you go into a negotiation with uh, good faith on both sides, and in fact you don't even need good faith on both sides, if you keep on displaying good faith without being a doormat, the other side will have to capitulate eventually because, you know, rules of society, human nature, all that kind of thing kicks in. But if you go into a negotiation in good faith, without being a doormat, like I said, you can get to a point where both sides will be willing to steel man it, as they say, right? That means like to, to argue the other person's side. Say, well, what's the best thing for you? And what's the best thing for me? Let's argue each other's side rather than arguing for our own interests. Let's argue for each other's interests. This book is chock-a-block full of, of how to go about negotiating. And like a lot of the books we talk about on this, this podcast, there's so much information that it's hard to, to cover every single thing. And even if I did cover every single thing, uh, you're not going to remember it. So um, I, what I try and do is I try and pull out what I think is the most actionable content or some of the best bits that are useful for you to take away. So one of the things I talk about is uh, the alternative to positional bargaining. So like I said, it's talking about people's interests. But the main crux of how how to go about negotiating or what they call the basic elements of negotiation is uh, these four main headings and the first one is people separate the people from the problem so like when two people take up position a and position b this is what i want that's what you want let's butt heads until we till we get there inevitably it becomes personal depending on the the stakes you know depends on, on what's at stake here but if you can separate the people from the problem it becomes an awful lot easier to, to come up with a solution. And that's what I mean about the two judges standing shoulder to shoulder rather than two um, opposing lawyers, say, for example, to continue the analogy. If you can separate the people from the problem, you're going to get much further towards a, a conclusion that suits most people. Second part then is interests. Focus on interests and oppositions. We've talked about that one. The third thing then, though, is options. It says invent multiple options looking for mutual gains before deciding what to do. 
And one another thing that they talk about in this book is that they say people can be opposed to, to wanting to come up with lots of options because then what happens is you end up just talking all around the houses and it feels like you're getting nowhere. But if you don't allot some amount of time in a negotiation to being inventive, coming up with the, the best options or just wacky options or crazy options or without committing to any of them, just kind of putting them all out on the table. Yeah, like say for example, one of the examples they give is if you want to buy a house for $300,000 and uh, the people selling the house want to sell it for $400,000, some of the options you can throw out would be things like, well, you could just give it away for free or I could pay you a million dollars for it. That way you're, you're not coming across as like an idiot who's just kind of say, well, I'll just pay you a million dollars for the house kind of thing. It's making sure that there's just as many options out there on the table and maybe that'll spark an idea. Because every single negotiation is always about the human relations. It's about empathy. It's about uh, walking in somebody else's shoes, um, to, for want of a better word. Which actually reminds me of a Billy Connolly joke. If, uh, if, you don't agree, <laughs> if you don't agree with somebody, walk a mile in their shoes. And if you still don't agree with them, well, they're a mile away and you have their shoes. So the fourth thing that they say then is uh, the criteria. Insist that the result be based on some objective standards. We'll talk about that in more detail when we get it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to go through the book, a whistle-stop tour like we always do through the book, and uh, give you the best bits um, as, as we go through it. There's a great example um, where they talk about um, how to separate the people from the problem. I'm actually going to read this verbatim from the book here, uh, this example, because it's, it's, a, it's a very clever example, because it's something I think that everyone can relate to. So here we go. A union leader says to his crew, All right, who called the walkout? And Jones steps forward. I did. It was that bum foreman Campbell again. That was the fifth time in two weeks he sent me out of our group as a replacement. He's got it in for me and I'm tired of it. Why should I get all the dirty work? Later, the union leader confronts Campbell. Why do you keep picking on Jones? He says you've put him onto the replacement detail five times in two weeks. What's going on? And Campbell replies... I pick Jones because he's the best. I know I can trust him to keep things from fouling up in a group without its uh, point person. I send, I send him on replacement only when it's a key person missing. Otherwise, I send Smith or someone else. It's just that with the flu going around, there's been a lot of point people out. I never knew Jones objected. I thought he liked the responsibility. And there you go is a great quote from uh, George Bernard Shaw. The biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it took place. I may have um, uh, paraphrased that slightly, but it's that example there is an example of the George Bernard Shaw quote that you think you've communicated something to somebody, but in fact you're just riling them up continuously. So when it comes to negotiation, communication is key, and you have to make sure that you separate the people from the problem. That's the key part of that example there, is that the the people involved are are, are employing emotion as they're thinking about the situation whereas when a person comes in to to mitigate the situation to uh to negotiate for both sides all he has to do is ask, ask a couple of questions and he discovers something that they could have discovered themselves if they'd had a 30 second conversation but nobody ever thought to so if you can separate the people from the problem you're already onto a winner Later on in that chapter, they go on to talk about perception. They say that understanding the other side's thinking is not simply a useful activity that'll help you solve the problem. Their thinking is the problem. So whether you're making a deal or you're settling a dispute, 
the differences are going to be defined by the difference between your thinking and theirs. That's a key component of any negotiation, deciding what the other person thinks without just asking them. If you go into a negotiation and think they want this and they want that, but you haven't actually confirmed any of that, then what you're doing is it's, it's your thinking and it's their thinking that's, that's going to just cause more and more problems. So empathy is the key, and they actually say that in the book there, that put yourself in their shoes. Uh, you have to think about what did they possibly want from this particular negotiation. Now, there's loads of examples in this book, and we'll get to some more of them as we go, but just a real quick one here um, about a tenant and uh, the landlady's perceptions, so the tenant's perceptions and the landlady's perceptions. The tenant says, I always pay the rent whenever she asks for it. And the landlady's perception is, he never pays the rent until I ask for it. And it's a, like these things happen all the time, but unless you actually understand it from the other person's point of view, if you understand the other person's um, situation, if you can empathize with the other person, you know, most of these things can be solved pretty quickly. Um, and like I said, whether it's a, a negotiation with, uh, with your boss over salary or time off or uh, promotion, or whether you're negotiating with a customer who you want to, to sell something to for a higher price, but you also want to maintain them as a loyal customer. All these kinds of negotiations, it, it, a lot of the time people think a negotiation is about uh, winning. It's a, They think it's about uh, getting what you want um, at all costs. And sometimes that works. Sometimes if you don't want to do business with anybody anymore, um, and you can you can put them over a barrel and make them uh, you know take your deal no matter what, yeah, maybe they have no choice but to take that deal, but they will do everything in their power to not do business with you again. Because it's all about people. It's all about understanding uh, the other people involved, the, the relationship with the other side. It's not about it's not about trying to get one over on people. It's about trying to come to a conclusion that everybody is happy with. Now, of course, I've said it a few times already, you don't want to be a doormat when it comes to these kinds of things. You don't want to just capitulate to every request they have so that they like you. It's not that important that they like it. It's important that they respect you. So you, you have to have a, a strategy going into a negotiation. But you also have to, as part of your strategy, I suppose, is there has to be empathy. You have to make sure that, they, that you understand that they have things that they have to get. You have things that you have to get. Uh, the substance of the negotiation basically wants to, 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 to get what you need. They need to get what they need. It won't be a successful negotiation. It'll be reneged on if uh, if one side or the other is not happy with the outcome um, when, when the dust has settled. An example of a negotiation that was uh, completely tone deaf um, as to what was needed or was um, going to work was when they tried to uh, end apartheid in South Africa. And what they did was they had uh, multi-party elections in 1994 and... There was these politicians, these, these moderates, I suppose, but they were all white. And at one point, what they were trying to do is they were trying to get rid of discriminatory laws that had been passed to, you know, that, that was causing apartheid. But how they went about it was ridiculous. They had meetings in all white parliamentary committees to discuss the proposals. So it doesn't matter how uh, good these proposals were, it doesn't matter how um, moral they were. They were never, it was, it was always going to be insufficient because they were a product of a process that had no black people involved. So all the black people would hear from their side would be, well, we white superiors are going to figure out your problems and we're going to solve them. And we're going to give you all the solutions you need and um, we're going to fix everything for you. 
which I mean it was never going to go down well so and like anything in life when it comes to uh, psychology or sales persuasion negotiation communication leadership all of these things there are universal truths or what you might want to call sweeping generalizations and negotiation is no different there's going to be a lot of emotions involved um, that that drive a negotiation but in the book they've they've pared it back down to to a core set of five interests and the first is autonomy that's the desire to make your own choices and to control your own fate so somebody doesn't want to be dictated to like the 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 black people in south africa who were told how apartheid was going to be uh, solved they were never going to adopt these solutions no matter how great the solutions were because they weren't involved um they weren't in control of their own fate they had no say in the negotiation and i'm actually i'm just going to pause there because i just reminded myself of um of an example i saw in a different book don't ask me what book it was this happened a lot to me i know i've read it somewhere before it's not my idea and i may have actually mentioned it in a previous podcast as well but i'll say it again here anyway just in case i read before about a uh, CEO and his head of sales who wanted to change the commission structure for their sales team because the team was starting to grow and the commission structure they had in place just wasn't going to work at scale right so they needed to make sure I suppose make it harder um, for, for the people to earn their, their, their commissions or whatever it was but rather than the CEO and the head of sales just going into a room and closing the door and, come up and coming up with a new structure, what they did was they involved the sales team right from the very beginning and told them that the commission structure wasn't going to work at scale. Uh, this is not a democratic decision. The CEO and the head of sales, they said, the two of us are going to make the decision, but we want your input. We want you to tell us what you think it should be and we're going to take that input and we're going to add that into the mix, if you like, bake it in as much as we can and make it as fair as possible. And so that's what happened. The sales team then all put forward their ideas for how they think it should go and and so on and so forth. And then the CEO and the head of sales did what they were supposed to do. They went into a room, they closed the door and they came up with the decision with the input from the team. And when they came out and presented the the results to the team of course some members of the team were disgruntled some people were i think that that works fine for me but everyone accepted it because they had autonomy they felt like they were involved in the process they felt like that they had some sort of control over their own fate and once they understood that there was a process in place and that they'd been listened to they made a huge part that was a huge part of the the senior team being able to, to push it across the line because they were able to say well we took all your, your feedback on board. We didn't just make this decision in isolation. We were able to uh, take your feedback and work it in as best we could and, and come up with what we think is the fairest solution. And because they said at the very beginning as well, this is not a democratic decision. This is not going to be up for debate, but we do want your uh, your input. It kind of it, it displays strength and it displays that uh, we're not doormats. We're not just going to do whatever you want us to do. We have to do what's right for the company, but we want your input. And that's a huge part of any uh, negotiation like that is that is for the other side to feel like they're they're part of the process that they're not being steamrolled. Anyway, that's the first the the, the core uh, interest is autonomy. The second one is appreciation. It's the desire to be recognised and valued, and that's true across the board. No matter who you're talking to, you're talking to your kids, whether you're talking to your to your boss, you can even tell your boss how impressed you are with a how they made the decision everybody likes to be given compliments and it's the same in a negotiation that the other side wants to feel like they're they're listened to uh, and they're they're recognized and they're valued the third thing is affiliation it's the desire to belong 
as an accepted member of some peer group. This is where emos come from and goths and hippies and all of those things all through the years when you're teenagers. Everybody wants to belong to a tribe. Everyone wants to feel like they are belonging to somebody uh, who respects them, somebody who acknowledges them. It's the same in the negotiation, believe it or not. And this is where positional negotiations come from. I'm in this tribe. I'm in the blue team. You're in the red team. Uh, and we're going to butt heads until we come to a solution. So it's important to... Uh, to, to allow that affiliation to happen, but to not allow it to direct the entire negotiation. So be aware that you're going to be as likely to want to be in a tribe as the other side want to be in their tribe. So it's important to recognize it, but to not be led by it. The fourth thing then is role, the desire to have a meaningful purpose, right? And that's, again, it's true of every part of life. There's nothing worse than if you're in a job that you don't really know what's expected of you. You don't really know what, uh, what you're supposed to be doing or, or what good work looks like. Same in the negotiation. For somebody at the table for a negotiation who hasn't said anything or isn't being asked for their input, I mean, that, that can fester in a negotiation. Again, it all depends on how long the negotiation is. It depends on what the negotiation is about. And the fifth thing is status. The desire to feel fairly seen and acknowledged, right? Uh, and if you trample on any of those interests during a negotiation, it's probably going to go badly for you. And I guess an, um, an umbrella to put over those five core interests is to recognize that, or to have emotional awareness, I suppose, uh, metacognition is what you might call it um, about yourself, is to, is to think about your own thoughts. And as, as part of thinking about your own thoughts is to think about the other side's thoughts as well. What are they likely to be thinking? And what are they likely to be feeling? So emotional awareness and emotional control is a key thing in any negotiation to, to not lose your, your head, basically, to, to, uh, to not react then to emotional outbursts from the other side as well. But they're both skills that need to be learned. And you cannot just dismiss them. You cannot just dismiss emotional, uh, the emotional aspect of a negotiation um, because you think it's weak or you think it's, you know, I want this and I'm going to steamroll the other side and so on and so forth. It's not going to go well for you in the long run. It might go well for you in the short term, um, but they will remain on, on, the, on the agreement because they felt like they were steamrolled. So emotional control, emotional awareness, and metacognition is what I'd add in. So they haven't said that in the book there, but I would say I would put metacognition, which is the ability to think about your own thoughts is to almost step outside yourself and say, why am I so stressed? Why am I feeling emotional here at this particular juncture? Don't dismiss them uh, and don't try to simplify it into basically I win and you lose. What you're trying to get to here is the win-win situation like they talk about in the seven habits of highly effective people. Returning again then to uh, focusing on interests and not positions is a very, very nice, simple, quick example that they give in the book as well. Uh, about two men quarreling in a library one wants the window open and the other wants it closed. Like you would think that is just, I mean, how do you solve that? One person wants it open, one wants it closed. Neither of them live there, neither of them own the window. Who gets to make the decision? And they go back and forth. They're kind of, you know, snapping at each other a bit about, you know, how much to leave it open. And I'm not leaving it open that much and halfway, three quarters away, all that kind of thing. And there's no solution that's actually going to satisfy them both. And then in comes the librarian and she says, well, why do you want the window open? Well, I want to get some fresh air. And why do you want the window closed? Well, I want to avoid the draft. So now she doesn't just have their positions. She has their interests. And so after thinking for, I would imagine, a microsecond, she opens a window 
nice and wide in the next room. Brings in fresh air without a draft. Simple. And it's 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 a great way to illustrate how people can can take up a position and then get emotional and defend it. Defend it to high heaven. Right? I just this is just what I want. I don't care what you want. I don't want it open. I don't want the window open. Well I do want the window open. And then that's just people taking positions. You have to you have to think psychologically behind that position. Well, why do you want the window open? Well, I want fresh air. Well, what about if you open the window in the other room where there's no draft and, and you get to a solution? Um, so, great little example there in the book about um, understanding what it means to, to see the interests behind a position somebody has taken. Uh, emotional control is a huge thing uh, for that there. They go on then to talk about this idea of, of inventing options uh, for solutions. Now, if somebody's opening and closing a window, right? There's, you know, it's a it's a pretty quick negotiation. It's not life life or death. But sometimes what happens is that when people get into a negotiation, they see their job as having to narrow the gap between positions, not broadening the options available. So then they they tend to say, well, look, we're having a hard enough time agreeing as it is. What the last thing we need is is more options. We need less options. We need to pare it down into two or three options. An option that's gonna keep your position happy and keep your position happy and that's real elementary stuff that is not what you're looking for when it comes to negotiation you're not arguing over positions you're arguing over interests i shouldn't say arguing actually they're not arguing over interests they're discovering each other's interests let's say and there's a quote here in the book that said it's worth reading out it says the first impediment to creative thinking is premature criticism and the second is premature closure and that's like just trying to get to a solution as quickly as possible rather than trying to get to the right solution for as many people as possible. So just trying to get to anything to agree on, that can be detrimental to the entire negotiation. So you have to keep that in mind as well. And then they go on to how to actually go about coming up with these options and they, they list off a couple of things. I'm going to read them out quick because it's actually reminded me of of something else um, that I'll talk about in a second. Uh, so it says, uh, to invent creative options, you'll need to, one, separate the act of inventing options from the act of judging them, right? Just come up with them with no uh, no judgment about whether it's a good option or a bad option. Two, broaden the options on the table rather than look for a single answer. And three, search for mutual gains. And four, invent ways of making their decisions easy. But what this actually reminds me of is a book called uh, The Six Thinking Hats, which is actually a great way to, it sounds a bit wacky, but it's um, it's a great way to run a meeting and it's a great way to uh, to, to think of like, these options here about, about negotiating. This guy called uh, Edward de Bono, right? Edward de Bono. Um, he was a psychologist as far as I know. And he wrote this book uh, probably back in the 70s, maybe called The Six Thinking Hats. Now, in fairness to, to, to Mr. de Bono, uh, it probably could have been a blog post if they'd had blog posts back in the day. He um, he really stretched it out uh, into an entire book. But the concept in it is brilliant because what he talks about in the book is uh, the six thinking hats, six different coloured hats. And he says that he kind of he's riffing on the idea of, of put on your thinking hat kind of thing. But what he suggests in his book is that everyone puts on uh, the same coloured hat to represent a particular way of thinking at a particular point in the meeting. So say, for example, uh, let's make up an example. Should we move into the German market to sell our product, right? Um, all the senior team are in a room. This is the, the question that we're putting in front of us. Should we move into the German market? Uh, is it a good idea or a bad idea? 
And what will happen is most likely that and I'm, obviously I'm completely simplifying the, this, the situation here, but let's imagine that's the scenario. What happens is that in this meeting, people just kind of go from one thing to the next to the next. Good ideas, bad ideas, a terrible idea. What about this? What about that? And it's just kind of, it just swirls into a big mess, right? And hopefully somebody along the way has taken minutes of the meeting to figure something out. But what Edward de Bono suggests is that if you're going to propose something like that to the team, should we uh, move into the German market? I want everyone to think with their yellow hat on, for example. And so the yellow hat is... Uh, is to think positively. What are all the good things about uh, moving into the to the German market? And again, just like they say in the book on negotiation, it's it's not about judging these ideas. It's just just give me everything that's a good idea about moving into the German market. And then you might think about wearing the white hat, right? And when you're look thinking with your white hat on, it's just looking at the available data. Looking at the information that you have, you analyze past trends, you see what you can learn from it. Uh, you look for gaps in your knowledge and you try to either fill them in or just take account of them. And then you might say, okay, we've got all that uh, nailed. We, we, and again, no judgment, no opinions given on the data available. What do we know? What do we not know? Where are the gaps, basically? And then you might think about red hat, right? So wearing your red hat. And that's looking at the at problems and you're just using your intuition or your gut reaction and emotion. And this is the one that a lot of people like to think, I just think it's a bad idea. I don't know why. And you don't have to know why when you're wearing the red hat. It's just, I just, I don't know why. It just feels like it might be a bad idea. And then a black hat then is looking at the decisions, uh, potentially negative outcomes. So looking at it cautiously and defensively and trying to think about all the reasons why it might not work. And if you imagine being in a, in a meeting with six or seven or eight people, if everyone is thinking in the same way at the same time, everyone gets a chance to say the bit that they want to say. And that goes on then with the green hat, uh, represents creativity, and this is where you uh, develop creative solutions, right? What are, the, what are the crazy ways we could go about entering the German market? And the blue hat then is the final one, and that is, uh, that's the process control. Uh, so whoever's in charge of the meeting, the, the blue hat decides uh, when you actually get to um, switch hats, basically. So it all sounds a bit wacky, but if you think about the, the philosophy behind it, or the metaphor, I suppose, behind it, uh, it's a great way of coming up with options for a negotiation. It's a great way of, of actually running a meeting as well. So it's called Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hats. Um, but like like I said, you can you can Google it pretty quick, and uh, you, you don't, I, I, well, maybe you should buy the book, I don't know. Um, but I've just given you the main bits of the book there, so you don't really need that book. It's a great way to run a meeting. It's a great way even even if you don't want to talk to people about uh, different coloured hats that they have to pretend to put on their head. You could just drop the whole idea of hats. Uh, if you're I'm, Again, I'm moved away now from negotiation, but if you're just thinking about running a meeting and wanting to get through it as efficiently as possible and making sure you get as much data out of people's brains as possible, just list out the things that you're going to do. We're going to think about everything that's great about this. We're going to think about everything that's bad about this. We're going to think about all the data that we have. We're going to think of creative solutions. We're going to look at um, uh, whatever the last one is, uh, the good instinct, right? And then I'm going to decide when we're going to think about what thing. And you can swap then from one idea to the next. But anyway, back to the original book that we're talking about, this, um, this idea of inventing options uh, rather than just uh, judging them. Right, and that's the six thinking hats might help you do that as well. So when you're inventing these options for p possible solutions or potential solutions to this negotiation, 
you have to be able to list them all out in a safe environment, in a sandbox environment, whatever you want to call it, where nothing is agreed till everything's agreed kind of thing. Let's just lash them all out there and just see see what happens. Um, a good way then as well, when you're in a brainstorming session or this kind of uh, creative sense of um, this creative environment, is you might want to mix it up a bit. You might want to make sure that the two people who, who could be on opposing sides of a negotiation, try and get them to sit side by side so that they, you know, metaphorically or even uh, psychologically are looking at the problem together, shoulder to shoulder rather than um, across the table in, in an adversarial setting. Um, and I give lots of ideas about how to come up with these uh, th these different ways of, of come up with solutions. Definitely well worth a read. One of the things then that they leave to uh, towards the end of the book is um, probably one of the worst acronyms ever. It's your BATNA, right? Your BATNA, B-A-T-N-A, stands for Best Alternative to Negotiated Agreement, right? Basically, at what point are you willing to walk away from a negotiation? If you're going to enter a negotiation and you absolutely have to get a deal, then there is no negotiation. You're just going to have to accept what the other side gives you. But your BATNA, as they call it, right, your best alternative to a negotiated agreement, that's the point at which you think that's no mass, right, no more. I can't, I cannot do it for that price. But you have to know that before you go in to a negotiation. A lot of the work for a negotiation is done beforehand and and what are the bits we're willing to give away? At what points are we willing to concede um, on price or delivery date or whatever it could be? What are the points at which we're, we're what's the point at which we're going to walk away and say there's there, we cannot do a deal if, if that's if that's a red line for you but then what are the points along the way at which you think okay well if we get this far then we'll be willing to concede this particular bit here if we get this far we're willing to concede this a little bit here and so on but what they talk about as well is to formulate a tripwire and so the way they describe this this tripwire is basically to give you an early warning that uh, the, the content of a possible agreement is beginning to run the risk of looking too unattractive and so it's useful to identify one far from perfect agreement that's actually better than your BATNA, right? Your your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And basically the, the BATNA as well is like, well, if we don't get this negotiation, if we can't come to an agreement here, what are we gonna do, right? What's the what's the alternative? And so the tripwire is kind of the, the last step before the BATNA, right? So it could be something like, a, you know, a, a bottom line is essentially what it is. Don't sell for less than 250,000, uh, the price I pay, paid plus interest, until you've talked to me, right? So you could leave a negotiator and look, this is, you're not to go below this number. Don't go below 250,000 because uh, that's just not going to work. And so that, that's like your 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 bottom line. And then you're batting it then. It's okay, well, look, if we can't come to an agreement, then we need we need an alternative. That's what you're, that's what you're batting it basically is. And so I'm going to finish the uh, this this episode with uh, an example um, that is essentially negotiation jujitsu really um it's it shall i got i won't won't read the whole thing out to you but uh i'll read out parts of it i'll read out the scenario first and uh, we'll talk then about how this guy was able to control his emotions how he was able to uh get the other side to admit to things i suppose that were that were true uh, in a very polite way and uh so i'll read out what the what the 
the situation was, and then we'll go through some of the the ways that they came to an agreement in the end. So uh, Frank Turnbull, um, which is a real name supposedly, Frank Turnbull rented an apartment in March from Jones Realty, what we would call a real estate agents, uh, for $1,200 a month. In July, when he and his roommate Paul wanted to move out, Turnbull learned that the apartment was under rent control. The maximum legal rent was $932, $268 less than he had been paying. So, figuring that he'd been overcharged, he called the realtors to discuss the problem. And at first, they were very unreceptive and hostile. And uh, she, the, the realtor basically claimed to be right and accused Turnbull of ingratitude and blackmail. After several long negotiating sessions, uh, Mrs. Joan agreed to reimburse Turnbull and, Turnbull and his roommate, and her tone in the end became friendlier and apologetic. So how the hell did he do it, right? How the hell did he get somebody to, to repay him his money that he was owed? One of the things he says here is, uh, Mrs. Jones, I've just learned, please correct me if I'm wrong, that our apartment's under rent control. We've been told that the legal maximum rent is $932 a month. Have we been misinformed? Right, no accusation, just looking for clarity on the situation, which is genius, right? That's uh, it's a great way to, even if you definitely know you've been overcharged, pose it as a question rather than as a statement because what a question do is it will give you answers what a statement will do is it'll cause an argument and that's what you don't want you don't want to cause an argument so ask questions and be genuine look correct me if i'm wrong but as far as i understand it we've been overcharged and then he goes on with a little bit of flattery he says paul and i understand that you were doing a personal favor by renting us this apartment you were very kind to put the time and effort in and we appreciate it we want uh, we want to know that we didn't pay any more than we should have uh, when we were persuaded that the rent paid measures up fairly to the time spent in the apartment, uh, we'll call it even and we'll move out. So he goes on like that where he just kind of puts his case forward in a very uh, emotionally controlled way without making any accusations, not saying you always or you never. It's all just this is what we would like. This is how I feel about what happened and so on. And so what Mrs. Jones says back then is she says, it's funny you should mention fairness because what you're really saying is that you and Paul just want money and you're going to take advantage of you still being in the apartment to try and get it from us. And that really makes me angry. If I had my way, you and Paul would be out of that apartment today. And this is now Frank Turnbull and he's barely controlling his anger. So I must not be making myself clear. Of course it would be nice if Paul and I got some money. Of course we could try and stay in the apartment until he got us evicted. But that's not my point, Mrs. Jones. More important to us than making a few dollars here or there is the feeling of being treated fairly. And it goes on like this. So it's this is what they talk about in this book is it's not just about I want this and you want that. No matter what she threw at him throughout this whole example, he stays calm as well as calm as he can. He controls his own emotions, but he uh, he, he gets in behind her position and doesn't rise to the bait. He doesn't get himself. He doesn't allow himself to take up a position. He he. He focuses on his own interests. He wants fairness. Uh, he wants to be treated fairly, and he wants honesty, honesty and integrity. And, and uh, even though the the real estate agent, the realtor, Mrs. Jones, she's getting highly emotional and very defensive and digging into her position, he doesn't allow that to continue. He doesn't allow her to to dictate the terms of the negotiation. And then, as you can imagine, what happens in the the end of that negotiation, the two lads get their money back and. Uh, they get what's almost an apology from uh, from Mrs. Jones, and it's actually worth getting the book, just just to re well to read the whole thing really, but to to see the the example there, 
because it's not just the uh, the conversation back and forth that's in there. It's the author's thoughts on it as well and what he was doing at each stage along the way. And it's it's a great example of how negotiations should go. Um, the the topic of the negotiation isn't as important as the approach to it. Um, and that's it for today's podcast. The book is called Getting to Yes, Negotiating an Agreement Without Giving In. It's by Roger Fisher and William Ur. U-R-Y. Don't know how to pronounce that. Uri. Uri? William Uri. Roger Fisher and William Uri. Um, so that's that. Listen, one thing I want to talk to you about before, um, before you go is we have just released again it depends when you're listening to this but we have just released our first course on usebecause.com it is based on the seven habits of highly effective people here's the key thing i've done podcasts on the the seven habits of highly effective people my guess is you've probably listened to them and if i asked you now to tell me what the seven habits of highly effective people are could you do it probably not have you deliberately practiced them probably not that's what our course allows you to do. Our course takes the main actionable content from the greatest minds to have ever put pen to paper and make sure th- that you understand, remember, and then deliberately practice. And then you can be truly considered to be learned. So it's all about deeper learning. So go to usebecause.com forward slash courses and uh, you'll see uh, the first course there, depending on course and when you're listening to us, it's only five euro. This is an, an introductory offer. I've no idea what the price is going to be eventually, but for now it is five euro. Um, let us know what you think of it. It's, uh, it's going gangbusters so far as the uh, saying goes. So until next time, I'm not sure what the next book is going to be. Um, I have a few in mind, but um, I will be sure to let you know uh, ASAP. So until next time, thanks very much as always for tuning in. And uh, please tell two people that you uh, know or don't know about this podcast. So until next time, thanks very much.